those of you who were here last week, it may strike up in your mind, oh, what a coincidence. We were just in 1 Samuel 17 last week with our guest speaker, Ross Lockwood. I have to tell you, this was not planned. This text was chosen before Ross let me know what he was preaching on. Think of the odds. I didn't plan that, and I'm just going to simply go out on a limb and say this. That just might be part of the Lord's good purposes for us. That we would be here assembled this morning, not just last week hearing 1 Samuel 17, but here this week hearing from 1 Samuel 18. If you're looking for it in your Bible, it's in the midst of a series of firsts and seconds. It's in the Old Testament, some number of books to the left of the Psalms. I'm trying to be broad in my guidance here. Uh, you have 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. We are in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 18, short text, just verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. As soon as he, and that's David, okay, picking up the context from the flow of things in 1 Samuel 17, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all, all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Well, let's pray together for just a moment before we go any further. Lord, we are told in your own word, given in your own word, this description of the word, living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We ask that you would wield your sword now, you would wield your sword and, and do this piercing, discerning work within our own poor hearts. We need that more than we know. Uh, some of us here this morning are, are coming perhaps fairly convinced of the need for friendship and relationship and such, but many of us really aren't. And even if we are convinced, we're struggling. And so we ask for your mercy. We pray in your name. Amen. South Korea was given the bid, well more than the bid, they were given the, the privilege of hosting the 2018 Winter Olympics back in 2011. And from that very moment, the little coastal town of Ganyang has been in full press preparations uh, to get ready for hundreds of thousands of visitors to come in to this touristy place that's pretty well more known for its beaches and its pine forests. They have spent years upgrading the highways. They have added a high-speed rail station there. Restaurants and hotels have gone through massive upgrades. The whole city 
has been renovated in preparation for this because, of course, this is part of a larger thing. It's just one city and a whole nation. It's part of a, of a nationwide effort on South Korea's part to open up their arms, to extend themselves to the world community, if you will, as they are hosting this winter game. And now, with the opening ceremonies behind us, literally it's time for the games to begin, and actually they already have. The athletes, it's time for them to compete with all of those preps, all of that the stage set. Well, in some sense, I want to say, that's what we have here in, in our text this morning. Uh, the stage is set, the, the table has been set, the way has been cleared, the provisions have been made, a gift has been extended towards us. God is giving, has given us the gift of true friendship, of a bond, not just of course he's extended himself in terms of a, of a vertical bond that can exist between his people and himself, but it goes beyond that, believe it or not. He, in his goodness, he's extending a gift towards us, a bond of true friendship, on not just in the vertical plane, but the horizontal plane. One to another. One, one to another. It's a, it's a wonder to consider when you look at the way this is described. It's it, More than that, it's a treasure that ought to be pursued. You understand there's a difference there. A wonder to be considered and yet also a treasure to be pursued. Not just something held up in theoretical and academia and something that perhaps we could talk about over coffee, but something that we're actually pursuing and engaging and, and giving ourselves towards. And I would say we have so much to learn here in this friend, from this friendship that we see described here in this text. 1 Samuel 18, between Jonathan and David. God has provided this gift of true friendship. It is ours then. It is ours then, but to heed his good word and to pursue this gift. Again, table's been set, way has been cleared, provision is made. It is now ours to lay hold of this gift that's being offered to us. Now, what would that look like? What would that mean? We're going to look at this from three different angles, three different ways, in some way, uh, I guess you could say maybe even ascending order. First, considering the possibility, just the mere possibility of true friendship. Is this fact? Is this fiction? Is it ideal or is it real? So the possibility of true friendship. Then the second thing, the principles, the pattern of true friendship. What would it look like if, in fact, let's just assume for a minute, in fact, it's real. Okay. And then thirdly, how? What's the engine? What's the fuel? What's the power? of true friendship. So you have the possibility, you have the principles, and you have the power of friendship. Let's look at this uh, together. So first, the possibility of, of true friendship. Is it real? Again, is it fact? Is it fiction? Is it possible for such a thing to even exist? Well, it's vital we look at the context here. It's something of an extreme case. You consider the, the possibility as put before us here between these two men, Jonathan and David. The context is that of a collision between two lines, two trajectories, if you will. One is the ascendancy of David. Now, I'm not going to go back and read all this, but if we were to go back into 1 Samuel 16, what we would be reading about is the anointing of David by Samuel. Okay? Then that is followed in 1 Samuel 17, the text we were looking at last week, David's victory in this very quick, it's not really a battle, it's more like a, 
battle scene, I don't know, you see the battle between David and Goliath, it's over really fast, like an old Mike Tyson bout. But anyway, um, that's 1 Samuel 17. So 16, the anointing, 17, the battle. The point being, when you hit 18, 1 Samuel 18, David's star is on the rise, okay? In terms of his popularity, his notoriety, he is a known figure in the nation of Israel. Okay, that ascendancy of David is colliding with uh, the hostility of Saul. That's our context of this relationship between David and Jonathan. David's popularity sets in motion jealous rage on the part of the king, who's actually on, still on the throne. So much so that I means Saul is, over the, the course of the next several chapters, we read of his, this madman's just, just obsession with getting rid of this potential rival. And, and these plots, whether it's a, you know, a simple thing or a much more complex thing involving whole, his whole army, whatever it may be, so that, that's the idea, the ascendancy of David colliding with the hostility of Saul. That's the context, the context again of this relationship, this friendship, this bond between these two men, Jonathan and David. Well, let's look at the parties now. Who are they? What do we know about these two men? Because that also... Is it makes it extraordinary, first the context, now that just who they are, that makes it all the more extraordinary, the fact that they have any kind of relationship whatsoever, and to say nothing of the depth of the bond, love, and friendship between them. So who are they? The differences. We need to point that out first. Jonathan, who is he? Jonathan is the son of the king. He's not named this, but he's, for all practical purposes, he is the prince. He is the likely heir apparent. The next in line to the throne. His, he's, he's a royal figure raised in the royal house. He's an authoritative figure. He has command within the army of Israel. This is Jonathan. Here's David. David is not a warrior. He's a shepherd. He comes from a backwater little town, no nothing, called Bethlehem. You hear about that later. And he is not a politician. He's a singer-songwriter. Those are the differences. Again, with all of that, and keeping in mind, Jonathan's the heir apparent to the throne. You could even, some commentators have made the point that really David is more Jonathan's rival than Saul's in, in some respects. And yet, with all that in mind, listen to this declaration. This declaration that has several places we could go in terms of what each man is saying of to, of one another and to the other over the course of their friendship. I just want to take you to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1, and this is right after uh, David gets word that Jonathan has fallen in battle. Okay, And, and this singer-songwriter, the poet, the psalmist, sits down and writes this song in his grief. And I just want you to listen to what he says about his friend in verses 25 and 26. First, excuse me, 2 Samuel 1. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, I need to quickly say something about that. 
because our jaded ears hear that with suspicion. We think, oh, we know what's going on there. And there have been some supposed experts through the years who have tried to make some, I'll just be frank, ridiculous claims about the nature of the relationship between David and Jonathan. The context doesn't allow for that. Even the Hebrew words, the vocabulary, don't even allow for that when you go back and trace the nature of this relationship, this friendship. This is not about anything that our suspicious minds would conjure up. This is about the selfless devotion of one man to another that perhaps is so rare and so striking and so amazing, we have no categories for it, so we go somewhere else. It is an amazing, beautiful picture thrusting before our eyes therein the possibility, at least, of true friendship, of this bond that Lewis, talking about the four loves now, has been speaking to us about and that the whole Scripture is full. Now, by the way, I should point out that, that this is hardly the, the first time, the only time, that we uh, see something like this in the Scriptures. Uh, several places we could look, I just wanted you to consider one. Jesus and his disciples. Among the twelve, there were two. One whose name was Matthew, one whose name was Simon. Matthew, you may know, he's the writer of the first gospel. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector by trade, which means in that, in that context, and nobody even today likes tax collectors, sorry if there are any in the room, but um, especially in that time, tax collectors were a despised lot because they were regarded as sympathizers with the occupying army, that being the Romans. That's Matthew. That's what he was in his prior calling before he was following Jesus. He was a tax collector. And he makes that very plain. He's very open and honest about that in his gospel. On the, here's, that's one. Here's the other guy, Simon. Simon is a zealot. Now that should be not just little z like he's earnest and excited. It's capital Z because he's part of a, of a political party, of a movement. The, in, the, the resistance movement there in Israel countering, fighting up against the occupying army of Rome. Okay, think about this. Of the twelve, you have these two who really could not be more poles apart in terms of their politics at the very least. Matthew over here, Simon over here, and yet, however large those differences were, and you can only imagine what kind of conversations they must have had around the campfire together, but however large those differences would have loomed, they were nothing compared to what held them together, their bond in Jesus. Those differences were eclipsed, dwarfed, crushed by the greater weight, the greater glory of their union in Christ. Now why is that important for us to grapple with? Because sometimes, I'm just going to speak to... to those of us in the room who are actually followers of Jesus. Okay, so sometimes we followers of Jesus allow ourselves to believe this lie. And the lie goes something like this. I can't really have a friendship with you. I can't really have a partnership with you. I don't have anything in common with you. The distance, the, the wall, the separation that divides us is too much. Civilian, military, 
I'm going to be very frank. Civilian and military. Married and single. Liberal and conservative. Black, white, brown, yellow. Whatever your tribe is. Whatever your thing is. We need to think about this. We connect most deeply on the things most essential to us. Think about that for a minute. One to another in relationship. We connect most deeply on the things most essential to us. So now with that reality, that truism in mind, what is your barrier? And what is that telling you about what is so essential to you? What is that telling you? What is it revealing to you about what your, where your identity is? If you're a follower of Jesus, you have one identity. It doesn't matter about class or background or upbringing or genealogy, or who your daddy is, or what your skin hue is, none of that matters, ultimately. Not if you're a follower of Christ. Those are all eclipsed, dwarfed, and crushed. God in His love has provided this gift of true friendship. Ours is but to heed His word, and pursue it. Pursue it. All right, that's the first point. The possibility. The possibility, the reality, not fiction but fact, not myth but real, the possibility of true friendship. Now that takes us to the second thing, the principles of true friendship. Okay, let's just assume for a moment that that's actually real, it's actually possible. What would it look like? What shape would it take? What would be its marks? And we see something of that in this text. First uh, Samuel 18, verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read it again. It's a short text. I think you just, it helps just to kind of get refreshed here. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Um, this is some, actually, just as a little disclaimer, this is, we've been, as men in our study of the last couple weeks, been talking about some of these very things and some of this came out just yesterday morning. All right, what are the marks? Four quick observations here. One, we see souls knit together. What, what, what image? What an image. Uh, souls knit together. Two individuals who are bound tight at the deepest level. Extraordinary description. Strongest of bonds. Two kindred spirits, united in a common cause, hearts together, unified, gripped under the reality of the one true living God and His red-hot passion for His people, comrades in arms, 
yoked together for anything that is about the honor of the living God. That's what you see. That's what you see. Souls knit together. Well, then it takes you straight into this, the love for the other. Some of you may know that the greatest of the commands is to love God, and here's a paraphrase, with all that you are. Okay? And the second greatest command is to love your neighbor as yourself. And twice, twice, clearly for the point of emphasis, twice in this short text, do you see that explicitly spoken to? Love for the other. And practically expressed in the gifts that Jonathan gives to David. The robe, the sword, uh, the, the bow, the belt, all those things. Now, in and of themselves, those were valuable gifts. But it's not just the value that's worth knowing. It's also what they represented. They were not just valuable, they were meaningful gifts. Jonathan, for all practical purposes, in giving David these things, is renouncing his claim to the throne. He's giving up, laying down his right, otherwise, to be the king. This is a true kingdom mindset, if, if, if you will. And he's doing this publicly for all to see. He's publicly declaring his loyalty, his fealty, if you will, to his friend David. That's some of what you see going on here. So we have souls knit together. We have this love for the other. Even more, we see unconditionality of the devotion expressed towards one another in this covenant that is made. Simply in the fact that it is a covenant, we know it has to be there in an unconditionality to it. We don't know really the nature of this covenant. We know, don't know, we're not told by the author where it was uh, carved. We don't know uh, what the circumstances were. But we do know its meaning. By nature of the fact that a covenant is being described here, we know that this is not a reciprocal contract where if you do your part, then I'll do my part. That's not the way covenants in the ancient Near East work. Uh, they are unconditional. An unconditional commitment. One to the other. No matter what. No matter the cost. I'm walking with you in, in this case. And such as this, this bond. So you have this, the souls knit together. You have the love expressed one to another. You have an unconditionality. And one last thing, this vulnerability. Now that's not explicit here in the text. The seeds for it are in this text. You actually see it explicitly coming up in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 19, verses um, 1 to 3. Now what you have going on there, I'll just set it up, is... The, the reality of this threat to David. I alluded to this already, and that is Jonathan's father, the king himself, and his jealous rage, and in time, it would be a whole, a whole army pursuing David, chasing him all around the, the countryside. Jonathan knows this and is offering something here in the midst of, well, because of David's vulnerability. So verses 1 to 3, 1 Samuel 19. This is one place of several we could look. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father to the, 
in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Jonathan, here's what's going on here. Jonathan recognizes how vulnerable David is. He can see, if you will, how exposed he is to harm. And he is determined to help him and to watch his back. In fact, it would seem that Jonathan's not so much concerned about his own back as he is David's back. And so he's going to do whatever it takes to protect him. Now, in that, these four points, souls knit together, love for the other, unconditionality, vulnerability covered, in that, what we see are the basic principles, the building blocks for any true friendship. For any true friendship. The principles, the signs, what does it look like? What is the shape? Well, that's basically it. I said a moment ago, I put the question to us a moment ago, is this real? Is it fact or is it fiction? All right, let's just assume for a minute you're buying in and saying fact, not fiction. Yeah, real, it's, it's not myth, it's true. Let's push it a little further. Another question, is it needed? All right, so we're going to grant that it's possible. Is it needed? Is it required? Is it necessary? Is it worth it? Now, I don't think it's any stretch to say that nearly everyone in this room, if not all of us in this room, to some degree or another, when we're going through a list of, of these four traits of a friendship, there's something deep within all of us that resonates there. That there's a, a rightness, a fittedness, a, a, a desire for something like that within all of our hearts. Perhaps it's right at the surface, we're just ready to acknowledge it, or maybe it's buried down deep, but there's something down deep within all of us that resonates towards us, that gravitates towards us, and I, I, we have to ask the question, why? What's going on there? What's going on there is that you were made for it. You were made for it. Every bit as much as you were made for air and food. It's necessary. It's vital. It's not optional. Is, are air and water and food optional? No. They are vital. They are necessary. And to the extent you have the vitals and necessities of life, you will grow and flourish. That's what we have here. One of the, the vitals and necessities of life, that we would grow and flourish as human beings. True friendship as part of our experience. God has provided us the gift of true friendship. Ours is but to heed His Word and to pursue it, which takes us to the final thing, the final point. So we have the possibility of such a thing. We have the principles, the pattern of such a thing. But how could such a thing be? Which is where we have to talk about now the power for it, the fuel for it, the foundation for it, how, whatever word, whatever image you want to run with there. How can it be? I was, I was talking about SpaceX Falcon Heavy in the beginning of the service and Starman and all that crazy stuff. But you know, there's, that's quite a, uh, an endeavor. Uh, that massive rocket that took off this past week, breaking the, the, uh, the bonds, I'm mixing my, my wording here, but breaking the bonds of gravity to get that beast up off the ground and break the Earth's pull 
to get it up into space. I mean, this, this one is supposed to not just rival, but actually to go past the force of Saturn V, that great monstrosity of a rocket that, that took us to the moon. I'm bringing this up because we are, we're facing a gravitational force of a lot of different kinds. You know, our selfishness, our, our delusional self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, pride, busyness, hurt, all these things that come into play. This gravitational force, what is it that will break past that and enable this to, to actually be reality? So we have to talk about the, the power of true friendship. How, how was it that Jonathan and David were able to experience something like this? And how might it be possible for us to experience something like this? And if you've ever been in a little kid's Sunday school class and the teacher asks you a question, you don't even have to hear the question. You just know the answer is who? Thank you. That was a little quiet. Was Jesus. The anointed one. The king, great David's greater son. What's happening in this text is these men are tasting of something that's coming. This is a foreshadowing of something that we can now taste of in an even more rich way if we will but have ears to hear. It's a few things that take us in this direction that are helpful to look at. First being Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry is very, very plain on this score. You think of it in terms of his teaching. When he called his disciples, we talked about this yesterday morning, when he called his disciples, he did not then set up a series of 12 appointments in his daily planner every week. He said, come and follow me, y'all. This was a group endeavor. And then when he sends them out, he doesn't send them out one by one as rugged individuals. He sent them two by two in partnership with one another. So just in his teaching we see that. And then in Jesus' example. I don't, know if you have many time, I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've read through the Gospels and picked up on this, but the number of times that Jesus, when the, the pressure is on, if you will, when he's able to, when the stress is heated up, he wants, he calls to himself his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. Most especially at the, the, on the Mount of Transfiguration and in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I think there's something instructive there. If that was the true of the disciples, you know, they were called to do this together, not, not individually, but together, corporately, needing one another, needing that, those bonds, those relationships, those friendships in place. If that was true of them as they're following Jesus and they can see him, and it's all very plain who he is and what he's saying. How much more so with us? And then pushing this further. If, if Jesus, when the pressure is on, when the heat is on, when the stress is high, and he's desiring and in some magnificent, mysterious way, needing, the God-man, yes, needing his friends beside him, how much more so with us? And wouldn't it be arrogant on our part to think otherwise? So Jesus' teaching and his example push us in this direction. I would also say Jesus' work pushes us in this direction as well, all the more so. 
in two ways. First, his finished work, and then what I'll call his unfinished work. So his finished work, meaning the empty, the, 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 the cross and the empty tomb. He lived the life we should have lived in our stead. He died the death we deserve to die in our stead. And praise God, there is nothing to be added to that and nothing that can be taken away from that. That is the finished work of Jesus. Now, coupled with that, and we don't talk enough about this as Presbyterians. Um, you may have heard the joke of, I think it was a Babylon Bee thing, that uh, the Presbyterian worship service, the motion sensor lights just shut off in the middle of the service. Um, we don't talk enough about the unfinished work of Christ. That is to say, His Spirit. The Spirit of the living God at work, taking that good news of the message of the finished work, applying it to our hearts, pressing it into our hearts, transforming us from the inside out, sometimes just more slowly than we would like, but nonetheless, slowly but surely, changing us, making us, as His friends, which is an extraordinary thing to consider that He would call us that, making us His friends better able therein to be friends with one another. As He takes the finished work and is carrying out this unfinished work and doing this magnificent work. Changing even us. Even us. That is, that is my friends, that is the power, that is the fuel, that is the foundation of true friendship. And, and again, we, we say, well, you know, is this possible? Absolutely it's possible. Especially so, I'm going to step on some toes here and say nearly exclusively so for the follower of Christ. And I want to explain what I just said. I am not saying that a, a non-Christian cannot taste of this and have good friends. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying they're but tasting of it. I'm saying, the Scriptures are saying, that we as believers, because of the finished work, because of the unfinished work of the, the Spirit at work within our hearts, as we are learning, in fact, that I have nothing to prove, I have nowhere to, I have nothing to hide, I have no need to hold back, that creates pathways, possibilities for relationship that otherwise would never be there. When people like that come shoulder to shoulder and face to face with one another, God has provided this gift of true friendship. Ours is but to heed His Word and pursue it. To heed and pursue it. To heed and pursue it. Let me end with this last thing. I mentioned the winter games at the start. We'll come back to that now. Think of the award ceremonies, right? What do you see? What do you see? You see those three champions, right? The, the gold, the silver, and the bronze, they're standing up there on that dais or those little columns and, and they're, they're with their, their nation's flag behind them and the awards, uh, the, the medals uh, hanging from their necks and the smiles upon their faces. That's what you see, but you understand that is hardly all that's there. That's the iceberg effect. That's the tip. There's so much more below that surface. What's below that surface is something like this. Days, weeks, months, years of dedication, hard work, discipline, disappointment, sacrifice, failure, persistence, and it all coming to a head in that one critical moment. Don't you think for a minute 
that that win, that victory just happened. It took a pursuit. It took tenaciousness. It took intentionality. My point being, true friendship, this gift that's held out to us, has to become a priority for us. It's not going to happen on its own. It demands prayer, considering the gravitational force working against us. And it requires patience, because it's not going to happen all at once. Priority, prayer, patience. Yeah, alliteration, that's right. It demands those things. It demands those things. If we are to heed what the Lord is putting here before us, and then a real honest pursuit of this gift. Let's pray together.